Investing insights with Right Property Group. Exploring trends in real estate and helping property investors gain financial security. Welcome everybody to another episode of Investing Insights with Right Property Group. I nearly forgot the name then. I don't know what I was <laughs> even thinking. It, um, we've been doing it long enough. How are you, mate? Pretty good. Pretty good. What's it's been um, happening? Uh, battling the traffic to get to the recording studio. Um, that's that's um, something that I think most of us seem to be uh, shying away from is the actual daily commute. Do you know what? It's interesting you say that. I, I was reading a report the other day that there are more cars, more cars on the road today mm-hmm. than what there was five or so years ago. I would have thought it would have been the reverse. I would have thought there's still the blended approach. Uh, people are working from home. Uh, but there's still plenty of people out there. Yeah, absolutely there is. And um, I guess um, this is the nature of the game, right? We, we shy away from something, then we revert back to what's the new normal. Uh, and uh, it st- starts another cycle. And the office blocks is another cycle. The block is another cycle. The block. The block. We're <laughs> going to get to that in a minute. Don't give it away. It, um, but you're right, it is another cycle of, I guess, just human psyche, mm. um, which then perpetuates different types of trends. Uh, in our case, it's different markets. Yep. Uh, and the wheel goes round because nothing ever quite stays the same, mm. uh, whether it be floods. I mean, actually, that's a really good example. So you, you look today and how there is quite obviously such an emphasis on where you purchase in and around flooding. Yep. But if you went back five years ago, a lot of people didn't even think of that. Mm. They wouldn't do their flood overlay mapping or anything like that because they hadn't experienced a flood. It's a one in 100 year event. Yeah. Um, it seems like the one in 100 comes every two or three years these days. Well, I think I was, I was, I've said a couple of times, we've had, where I live, we've had four in one year mm. of the one in 100 year events. It, um, it's going to blow the data out. A little bit. It uh, well, even even if, like not even in my area, but say up far north coast, where you have the government potentially buying back mm. properties uh, that were caught in those flood corridors. I guess I wonder if that opens up a can of worms for everywhere else across the state yeah. uh, that went underwater. But nonetheless, diligence, diligence, diligence. Do your research first. If it's uh, cheap, it usually is for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but today, Vic, the subject. Well, you, you actually tell us the subject. Well, everyone's been look, uh, you know, watching the block. And um, uh, you and I were sitting the other day over coffee and um, we were just talking about how that whole tra- uh, episode transpired and the fact that you know, it's created its own market, it's created its own record where in that suburb the record was one and a half mil. And now all of a sudden we've got five, five plus. Mm. And it's created its own market and it got us thinking as to how markets can be perpetuated, how markets can be created. And in fact, how markets can be downgraded because of all of the external factors, not the fundamentals, the external factors in that area. So there's, there's I guess there's two types of markets then in terms of market makers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the good type, yep. which would be based around infrastructure, employment, um, affordability mm. and the like. And then there'll be the markets that are created uh, from a self-perpetuating point of view because it's well marketed. Mm. Uh, maybe it's got some short-term fundamentals. That could be a mining town or yeah. something like that. But we'll, we'll drill into it a little bit uh, later on uh, into the podcast. But I think it's first and foremost, it's important for people to understand 
what market they're talking about. And actually, that would play into the podcast we did a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, Mm -hmm. around timing the market and time in the market. Um, And I guess this is a a follow-on from that in some way, shape or form, because which market are you talking about? So in today's episode, market makers, what creates the market? Which market are we talking about? We're talking about the finance market. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about the actual real estate market? And if we're talking about the real estate market, which part of the real estate market are we talking about? Because there's residential, commercial, agricultural, warehousing, industrial, office space. Mm. So we need to be really careful when we're, not us, but the general populace, the media or whatever it may be, when they're giving commentary around a market, well, maybe they need to get a little bit more definitive because that can actually... I guess it can steer a market once you get momentum. Exactly right. And and um, this is where it can potentially become a current affair news, you know, five, six years down the track when it doesn't actually pan out. And um, I guess there are many ways of influencing it. Uh, some of these, some of it is through developer stock. Others is through just media attention in that area or strategic purchasing in that area that just, um, you know, then make it newsworthy and, and it it's fairly easy to make things newsworthy these days. You just jump on Facebook and um, uh, it becomes newsworthy if it if the headlines are good enough and the story is juicy enough. So there's a lot of influencing factors in there that can create the market. And, and uh, you're right in saying that you know it, it goes two ways, right? It can create but can also destroy markets as well. So uh, it and especially when people are just taking headlines and running with it without looking behind the scenes as to what's really happening why this story is perpetuating, why is there interest in this area? And interest could be something as simple as, geez, that's nice and shiny, I want to have that. It's a good point because if you go way back to when we first started, even before that, I guess, uh, there was that that phrase, uh, you know, build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. In other words, go out to the middle of nowhere, build a city or build yep. a, a council area, may not have any infrastructure. And I can think of three or four straight off the top of my head that today are performing very well because infrastructure populace uh, has infilled, mm. I guess. But when it was first built, it was a satellite yeah. area with realistically nothing, but it was well marketed mm. to the off-the-plan house and land package scenario. And we, we do see, I guess, not as much of that today because education is far more prevalent now thanks to technology and the, and the like. But back then it was... It was pretty slick. Yeah, it was. And and um, for those that have been around um, the time when we had actual publications uh, for investing, so the magazines. On uh, rock? Oh, paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the investing was done based on someone's profile. So someone's done really well in an area. And if they feature in a magazine, that area just bounces, right? And a more recent example would be uh, you know, Channel 7 as an example, highlighting an area saying, hey, this area has gone up in value, it's affordable. And immediately we see from feedback with the agents that their phones start ringing hot. Yeah. Everyone starts to jump in, um, trying to catch onto the gravy train of growth in that area, supposed growth in that area. And they throw fundamentals out the window thinking that if it's in the media, if it's being talked about, then it must be legit. It must have checked out. Someone must have done the due diligence. I wonder if that's still pertinent today. In, in other words, 
because of social media now, you can get groups mm-hmm. of people that could potentially shape a market for the short term. Yep. Uh, whereas back in the day when media was more real, mm-hmm. dare I say it, um, and people put weight on what was said, uh, that, as you say, you know, where's the m- buying a property? I remember buying uh, the Channel 9. Um, I did a thing with them on way back. This is way back in the day where I think it was where to buy a property under $400,000 in Sydney, a house, mm-hmm. and you know, 40 minutes to the CBD. And that was aired on Channel 9. I think it was Channel 9. And all the agents, as you said, they just went, their phones just lit up. They blew up instantly because people, well, I guess people didn't realise that you could buy a property yeah. that cheap in Sydney. If, if I sidestep for a minute and I bring that forward to today, I often speak to people and they think that everything in Sydney is a million dollars minimum. But when you say, look, you know, there are pockets there, houses... With good fundamentals. With good fundamentals, but you know that could be six, six fifty, seven hundred thousand dollars, and they can't believe it. Now yep. clearly they're not Sydney siders. Mm. Yeah, they're from different yeah. states. Yep. Uh, but That's it's right. it's perception versus reality. Mm. Yeah. And even even uh, with some some clients that I've just um, uh, engaged with, they are from Sydney, but they haven't travelled outside of their sphere of influence in terms of their comfort zones. They haven't gone out from one suburb to the other suburb or the other side of the city, so they don't quite know what the um, real value is on that end as opposed to this end, whether it is higher or lower, right? So uh, often we get um, uh, lulled into our comfort zone. We travel within within certain confines. Uh, we don't see a reason to go anywhere else uh, through either choice or necessity. And therefore, uh, in, you're not exposed to that vista. You're not exposed to that area. You're not exposed to the price brackets and, and the demographics and uh, are unable to see the opportunities in those areas because you've got your local filter on. Mm. And if we, we use a broader example than that, and I won't mention the person, but maybe everybody can guess that's old enough to remember, but back in one of those mining towns back in the day mm-hmm. uh, where this is back in print media days, and so they, this particular person who was a marketing person, yep. I guess, is one way to describe them, uh, I would say put this town on the map mm. in terms of exposure to investors and it just, it went. Skyrocketed. Yeah, massively. Uh, you fast forward to the end of the boom, which was a, a mining-led boom or resource-led boom, and you couldn't rent them. Mm-hmm. You couldn't give them away. Um, you, like you physically couldn't give them away. The council rates were too expensive yep. just to control it. Um Fast forward again to today, though, they've come back a little bit, but they're certainly not what the house and land package cost was back then. But I guess my point is it was a very short-term market. And, mm-hmm. and this is this is the point. When markets are made, you refer to the block uh, in that particular locality, you've always got to ask yourself the question, is this a man-made market? And what I mean by that is it is a short-term market versus something that is sustainable. Mm-hmm. Because you're trying to you're trying to balance the immediate with the future. Yeah. And if you if you just take the immediate and there's got and it hasn't got any long term fundamentals, then you'll be a winner for the short term. But then mm. you'll be stuck, and people will catch up to that. People will cotton on to that. Well, that area there is now no good, mm. and it probably won't be for many many years because it doesn't have, I don't know, infrastructure, employment, uh, jobs, same same. Um, all the fundamentals that you do need 
for sustainability. And that's often a trap that we see. People take the short-term approach as opposed to the medium and long-term. And the problem with taking the short-term approach is you are doing nothing but gambling. Yeah. It's your gambling with leveraged money. Which nothing is, more dangerous. Which is amplifying the risk. Mm. Uh, one of the things that we are very careful is not to mention specific areas we do broad areas so as an example would say the you know logans of brisbane or uh, you know the the penrits of sydney um, being very careful to talk about council areas as opposed to suburbs as such because often people would take our word and then run with it um, and uh, that does have the ability to create its own market and um, we're very cognizant that people can get financially hurt if they take just a snippet of information without looking at all of the surrounding factors that influence that snippet of information to implement as their own strategy. And it's really important to look at it from a viewpoint that, yes, areas could be performing really well, areas are in vogue, but it may not be the right one for you based on your circumstances because overlaying the growth factors and all that with your own uh, information, your own financial fingerprint is really, really important uh, so that you don't get become a casualty and um, understanding the cycles in that area to say that, okay, if you did run into trouble and um, how long is it between the peaks and the troughs to be able to get out of trouble if that were the case. And I guess the other side of the equation, because all we've done is spoke, like for the last five minutes, is speak, spoke about all the negative mm -hmm. parts of making a market but there are markets uh, that are made that are full of positive yes um you, you could probably argue i'm trying to think of an example that's relevant and recent would be badgeries creek yeah absolutely that's yep. in new south wales yeah sydney so for those that don't know the big uh new airport mm -hmm. in sydney and i actually i don't think people understand or can grasp just how much infrastructure employment that is that that is necessary to to run that yeah. once it's complete. Well, not even just the the construction side of it, but once it is up and mm. running. So that's a good example of an area that is that was put on the map mm. literally, and obviously locals knew about it and with the surrounding uh, suburbs and and regions. But now that it is out there in the general public and it has been now for four, five, six years, everything around it depending on different circumstances such as financial environments and ecosystems, everything around it has benefited in terms of value, mm. in terms of infrastructure, in terms of jobs, all of the good stuff that you, that you need for your asset to be sustainable. So it's not just market makers are not just all about the negative, you know, yeah. one trick pony towns and slick marketing. Um, there are many examples of where markets are made mm -hmm. and they'll be healthy for forever. Yeah, absolutely. And one one of the things that we uh, do uh, in our own personal investment is that when they talk about infrastructure coming into the area, we wait until that infrastructure is actually broken ground before we really jump in. Um, because often these things can be shelved. And and if you look at the Badgers Creek example, the, the second airport, that was in the making for about a hundred years. Oh God, yeah. Um, several political parties came and went. Um, promising that they'll get it off the ground until finally it's off the ground. It's, it's a good point because you really need to identify what type of an, of an investor you are and mm -hmm. at what stage that you're at. And 
actually, maybe for clarity on that, um, people can go back and listen to, I think it was episode 66 of mm-hmm. you know, trying to identify what investor profile you are and you know, side note, don't be the last one. Um, but have a listen. But those types of people that, that are in those forward-facing areas, so we're in land banking, mm-hmm. have the means behind them. And it could be that it. you have to hold it for a generation before Correct. you come to fruition. Correct. It, um, yeah, I remember parts of Sydney, that acreage in Sydney that was selling for a million dollars an acre 17 years ago on the premise that the light rail was going to go through. And it, it was given the tick of approval, then it was uh, ripped from underneath them, then it was given the tick of approval, then it was ripped from underneath them, and fast forward today, it's there. But there's been several owners through that area yep. who have made a fortune and lost a fortune. I guess timing was the most important piece for them, but having the ability to control it for the long term to get the honey pot, mm. I guess, at the end of the day, is only for the select few. Yeah. You can't you can't just go into a multi million dollar multi 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 million dollar um, proposition looking for the pot of the gold pot of gold in ten, fifteen, twenty years time without the ability to hold on to it. Hold the asset now we often refer to that as as bracket creep mm. um actually you know what next podcast yeah we'll do that we'll do that yep. we'll do something about bracket creep and we'll give you an explanation uh, in and around that um but for the majority of investors so we'll, you know the the retail investor so to speak we're not controlling 50 60 70 100 million dollar plots of dirt where there's three and four, cash flow correct right where the yeah, the standard house for the standard person in the standard area. Now, there's there's variations of that, you know, in terms of affordability, I guess, um, not just to one's own, but where you want to invest and what the banks will give you. As we've said before, there's two types of affordability. Um, but making sure that you get the right strategy to begin with so that you are balancing the now with the future and not gambling yep. is absolutely that inflection point. That's where the the trick that's where that's where the pot of gold is mm. is to get it right now so that you're all right for the future rather than speculative which we've seen a lot of over the last three years yeah absolutely now let's uh, you know and that that brings to us the example of the block now i'm going to preface this with i don't know much about gisborne in victoria where um, the block was uh, in this episode but let's that <laughs> and we don't want channel nine to sue us <laughs> let's let's talk about concept behind it you've, you've built something that's a kind uh, of pull at the heartstrings in terms of i want to live in this house but it's not necessarily the the area so you, you're falling in love with the house and and the reason you fell fell in love with the house is it's been portrayed in the media it's been um uh, trumped up uh, for the one for better word uh in terms of how good it is how good the construction is uh but we're only seeing the the shop window of that process. We haven't seen how the construction had uh, occurred, what shortcuts they've taken, what's the cost base. Um, and in, in, indeed, if we take a purely investment approach to that, what are the other factors influencing it? You know, what are your employment centers, all the sort of stuff. So um, this is where a lot of people do get it wrong, uh, taking that example into, into play that when media does get involved, when there's enough people talking about a particular area, people jump in and start paying top dollar for it. Uh, and, and this is a true example of investing via media. Yeah, and, and it, 
it can be very, very dangerous. Like in that particular locality where the block was bought and filmed, mm -hmm. I guess that's a way to describe it. There's been tremendous growth over there. Yeah. Like now, if you were a if you were a speculative type investor, you would have purchased there as the block was purchasing there mm -hmm. and rolled the dice to see how you want. Now you would have had a few things go against you, such as the other you know, rates environment and everything that goes along with that and consumer sentiment. Um, but there would have been people that made some decent money. Yep. They would have rolled the dice. And I guess it's very important to understand yourself. Are you the type of person that wants to roll the dice or are you the person that is the complete opposite mm -hmm. and is just looking for that, I guess, that normal sleep at night component? Now, there's, there's, n there's no right or wrong, I, I believe, and I know that would shock a lot of people for me to say that or people would disagree with me, but... Ultimately, you are who you are. And if you want to have a crack, have a crack at whatever that may be mm. for you. It's just not for me. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is also um, a good parallel to draw from that is that a lot of people put everything on their in, in the first investment or their investment. They, they don't have the slush funds. They don't have um, a planned approach to it. Um, a good example of it is the couple that only made 20 odd thousand from their yeah. efforts, right? Yep. Now, uh, and um, if you believe the uh, media, they've got to sell the uh, the car that they've won to, you know, replenish their savings, which they had used over the twelve week period. If I if I take that parallel into investing, a lot of people will then punch above their weight. They'll get into an area that is not necessarily suited for them, but it is media driven or let's take media away. It's friend-driven. So, you know, their circle of friends have bought in that area. They've done really well. So they jump in and they've bought beyond their means or they haven't uh, taken into account that if the growth doesn't happen immediately, what's the contingency? What, what, what are we going to throw into the pot to help hold on until there is growth so that we can get out of, out of this investment or capitalize off this investment to leverage onto the next one? So they're the things that we need to be um, thinking about before you're jumping into a, into a property. So could we could we explain that by saying that potentially areas that are that are greenfield sites, mm -hmm. so that they are a an isolated community slash region that is there's a lot of open space, green space, yep, paddocks we'll call them between themselves and the next employment hub employment hub or, or you know, centre mm. um, of influence, perhaps, um, which we see a lot of in Melbourne. Mm. So there's there's a lot of areas, not, there are some areas, um, to clarify, there are some areas where they are struggling to do very well or well at all and have been even after the last three years worth of extraordinary growth yep. because there's so much infill. Now, yes, we could overlay COVID there and half of you know, Melbourne have moved. Mm. Um, so there is some other circumstances, and I guess that's the point. You, there are always circumstances, good or bad, there is always going to be something that will perpetuate a market, soften a market, crash a market, call it a crisis. There's always a crisis or an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Always. A and, and opportunity lies within crisis, right? Uh, I guess when you're investing, the approach you need to take is that okay, it won't go the way that you think it will. So what is our risk mitigation? How can we hold onto it and not impact our lifestyle to begin with substantially? 
and secondly not undo all of the good hard work we've done in the past in terms of other properties that we may have bought or, or portfolio that we're holding and if we take that approach uh, in uh, in in terms of buying properties uh, adding to the portfolio you simply can't go wrong in the sense that you can't go wrong when it goes wrong so you're not losing everything at that point in time because you've got you've got the contingencies in place and something as simple as okay um i've got a slush fund of one year two years worth of holding costs set aside because this is a riskier um investment in comparison to other things i've done in the past because there is a little bit of speculation on this one and every now and then in a portfolio you can actually afford to in a planned approach have a little bit of speculation not purchasing just for speculating uh, sake but it could be that you know it has got several strategies within that within that one property so you don't know exactly which way you're going to go with that because you're going to roll the dice when everything lines up perfectly on that property it's a negative to that mm-hmm. when you have too much opportunity in it's one hard property. to make a decision. Well, you get decision fatigue. Yes, hundred percent. It's you know, which which direction do I go with this? You know, and often, if you don't think about it uh, clearly, you'll pull the wrong yeah, yeah. lever. I've I've got a perfect example for for this. Uh, this is a property that I bought actually in a suburb, and I'll name the suburb. Um, Oh, you're trying to you're trying to mark you're trying to <laughs> make the push market up the value of my guys buying Minto, buying Minto New South Wales. I bought this property back in 2006, so it was a corner block. Uh, and, and my plan at that time was that we will move into this house. And Steve, you've been there. Uh, we will move into this house, and then uh, we will um, live in there for a little while and sell it for profit. But because this property had so many options on it. We still have the same property there. Obviously, we moved out a long time ago. We've still got the property there. We haven't done anything to it, just simply rented it out. The things I can do with that, I can put townhouses there. I can put a granny flat there. I can do a boarding house there. I can do an NDIS development there. I can do a block of units if I can get another slither of 50 square meters on that. So there's so many options there that you're right. It is decision fatigue. And then you, you think, okay, if I go down this route, what if I miss out on the other one? Yeah. Yeah. And that's you need to make yep. executive type decisions mm-hmm. and stick with it yes make the decision through and sleep on it mm-hmm. correct it um so if you were to if you were to say then coming back to making a market Vic, and making sure that you pull the right rein in terms of asset selection what would be the biggest thing that would carry you through those moments like we have today increasing interest rate environment so that you so that you can sleep at night and survive Look, it's the ability to hold on. That's that's my biggest thing, right? Forget growth. Forget growth. Because growth in, in the right areas, the growth will happen in the background. And you will never get linear growth. It'll always be in spurts. Um, however, being able to hold on until you've got that growth is the most crucial part of selecting a property and selecting an area. The next thing that I would look at is obviously the liquidity factor. So the, the three types of liquidity I'd look at. One is obviously the, uh, the sales volume. Now, I would not go with what the sales volume is right now. I'd look at the historic sales volume to say, okay, is there enough throughput in there? So which then pushes you more towards your metropolitan and the larger regional areas rather than one-trick ponytails. Right? So there's enough volume there, enough people buying in 
the other liquidity I'd look at is is the lender willing to lend me money in this area and what's the LVR? That tells you heaps, right? Now, you've got to put another filter on this. Sometimes the LVR is determined by the borrower as well. If they see you as a risky borrower, so you're self-employed, you've just started, uh, they may limit you down to 70% loan-to-value ratio. Um, every now and then what you find is that uh, your inner city, as an example, the apartment market, lenders will no longer lend 90%. They'll drop it down to 80%. So that tells you the liquidity in that market. Then the third liquidity, obviously, is people renting. right? How many people are looking to rent? In other words, the employment hubs around it. Are we dependent on just the one, two employment hubs? Multiple hubs, easy to travel to hubs. Good example of that, mining towns. Mm. right? Uh, you get a huge amount of influx and lots of jobs, but once everything's automized, the, 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 there are less people renting because there are less jobs. The mining towns is a really good example. So too is the, the inner city units yes, where the LVR is mm. absolutely played with. So it may not be just about the area, but may be about the property type mm. within that area. So making sure that we have that long-term filter on it. And as you say, looking at the bank's LVR positions gives you a very good scope historically about the ups and downs of that area and what their risk appetite yes. to it is. Because at the end of the day, it is a game of finance. It is all about the lender's risk appetite, not just for the asset, but for you as well, so that they'll give you the money and you can control the asset. Mm. As the market gets flooded with a particular type of property, so using the apartment uh, example, a really good litmus test here is whether you can get lender's mortgage insurance on it. And if the insurers are shying away from it, that tells you that you've oversupplied in that market. There is no lender confidence in that market at the higher loan-to-value ratio. Every bank will lend you money so long as their risk is mitigated. right? So if, if the loan-to-value ratio is low enough, they will lend you the money, uh, particularly if you've got other collateral as well. Well, yeah, that ties into it very nicely. So they might want to cross-securitize you, yep. which is... Another big no-no, which you can go back to one of the other podcasts, um, say Z from MLS Finance, mm-hmm. where we spoke about the pros, which are there not too many, but more so the cons about cross-securitization. So I think it, it's really important that as we look, especially in today's environment, that as we look forward, probably, if not most certainly, the best performing markets in five years are probably flat now. Very flat. And the question is, well, why would they be flat if they're a good solid area? Ironically, it comes down to the banks. Mm. And we often talk about this with clients saying, look, if we if we look at the data in behind it, just forget making markets for a minute, although it does tie into it, is that the difference between intent and ability is vast today. The intent for the retail investor is almost as high as it's been in a, in a long time, right? Yes, obviously consumer confidence has kicked in um, and ebbed a little lower, but the intent is there. It's not as if someone has turned the switch off and everybody's gone, I, I, I don't want to purchase yeah. anymore. It is more about the ability to do so. Now, we had we had Z on from MLS a couple of podcasts ago and I think the rough figures were if you could borrow a million dollars eight months ago today, it's 600, yep. 650 or something like that. That's a substantial huge, reduction. Huge. Now, what that does is it will drag value down because there's less people in the market that have, let's just call it the million dollars for my math's sake, so there's not as many people in the market that have the ability to purchase. The intent might be there, but they don't have the ability. So there's not as many transactions. And so the property can ebb lower in terms of its 
value proposition or its real value, its yep. market value. But what we also see, and this is where m markets can be, I'm not going to call them made, but they can be steered in a different direction. As we see the affordability metrics come down from the bank's eyes and people still have the intent, they can't borrow more. So the affordable co corridors, they bounce. They can bounce. And we saw that during the GFC even with, not so much on the value because the GFC was a, yeah, a horrific point in time where all assets lost value. But what we did see, what we did know as the GFC unwound and very similar patterns to what we're experiencing today, and we've talked about it for four years, is that rents mm. would bounce very, very hard. They would go through the roof. Yep. Because as everybody compressed down, as things got tighter, mm. you can't compress further than affordability. So it puts more pressure on a market that doesn't have the supply coming into it to accommodate more people. So it's a chicken or egg scenario, yeah. which is repeating itself today. That's right. And, and so th those affordable areas then lead the the um, change in the cycle to recovery again. Correct. Right? So um, there, there is, when, when you look at the scenario of, um, you know, affordability, buying properties and holding on for the long term, you always need to be looking at it from a viewpoint that, yes, it'll take longer than I, what I anticipate. Just just like a renovation, right? If, you, if you're anticipating it to be three weeks, it's six weeks. You, you, there are factors that you can't control. Therefore, if you bring it back to purchasing and holding a property, there are factors that you can't control in the economy. So you need to look at the insular figures within that property and how it fits into your financial budgets uh, and assume that if you are you know, advocating for $500 a week rent, work your figures on 400 You can't go wrong that way. I think maybe well, one, one of the ways I've always looked at it is that there's no crystal ball that will give you pure, clear vision on what mm. a market will do yep. in the future. So always account for how is that particular area, how is that particular property going to do in the worst possible mm. scenario. Yeah. And the worst possible scenario might be you out of work, it might be the market struggling in terms of value, and it also might be around supply and demand. Mm. So can you rent it? Because ultimately, the one undeniable factor on what allows you to control your personal circumstances in terms of wealth, be it property or what have you, is cash flow. Whether it be personal cash flow, whether it be the assets cash flow. Mm. And you need, you need both. You need both. And once again, bringing the GFC back into it and how the market was made back then, is that if you had, and you could probably say the same for today, if you had the ability to control the cash flow back then, therefore not sell your asset, and you fast forward some, what are we, 10 years since the end of it or thereabouts? Mm -hmm. 20. 20 years, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> lost a decade <laughs> um it's tripled mm -hmm. those assets have easily tripled yep. from from that point in time it'll be a very similar story today maybe not so when i say today i mean in this mm. sort of 12 month sphere around yep. us at the moment people aren't contemplating in in mass amounts to sell so this is market making whether mm. it be up or down um, but there are a few undeniable factors that we need to I guess, contemplate and take into account for tomorrow's market. And that will be around liquidity. So the tempo of the market, or it'll be around the individual's liquidity, which is around the cash flow. Mm -hmm. And of course, what's in the pipeline, so pipeline analysis yep. for the next two to five years. Especially understanding that we haven't done much construction in the last two years. 
well, did we talk about the budget? Uh, we did very briefly. Was yeah. it on podcast yeah, it or a, Facebook, Facebook Live? Live? Facebook Live. Right. So there's been clearly, if I'm repeating myself, just bear with me. It's um, clearly the budget was handed down a couple of weeks ago, and the and the big, the big ticket item was the housing accord, mm-hmm. and within that, the big. Um, big ticket itself was how they're going to build a million properties over five years from 2024. Yep. A couple of questions um, that I would have for the for the treasurer is what happens between now and 2024? Mm. Um, A million houses every five years we're already doing that. So we're we're not adding anything to the pool and we've obviously got big immigration and and what have you Um, and that the federal government will chip in big business will be a JV partner, as is um, potentially super funds. Mm. I'd, I'd like to know how you're going to get all three of those all sort of... On the table. Yeah, to, to agree with. Yeah. And then the big thing that nobody's really talking about is how are you going to get the three layers of government, we'll call it, to collaborate. So federally, state council. and council mm. to release the land, to, to soften the red tape volume. So there's a lot of moving pieces. Mm. But I'm not really sure that they know how it's going to unfold. Um, but one thing I will say is at least they've now recognised that there is an absolute problem out there and that's that's the first step. But if we're not careful, it'll be another... I was going to choose my words carefully there because I get to see a lawsuit. But it'll be a another um, pink bats. Yeah, absolutely. Pink bats um, yep. sort of kahafel if it's not, mm-hmm. if, if we're not careful. Yeah, that's true. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, Steve... Um, that you know, there be areas where we're buying where there is no growth, but it'll have growth will happen in five years' time. So it's actually starting to plateau out. And uh, often um, we get people saying that, well, why would you buy in that area when there's been no growth for the last two years or no growth for the last ten years? It comes back to fundamentals, comes back to pattern recognition, recognition, and it also comes back to knowing when the cycle is likely to turn in the area because it just needs a catalyst to turn. Um, so a good example of that would be... Um, Tasmania, uh, yeah, South Tasmania, Australia. Yeah, that's it, yeah. that's it, yeah. Uh, or even um, if you look at someone that's that's bought in Brisbane, um, often people talk about, you know, they've had no growth for 10 years and all of a sudden it's woken up and done this, take away COVID, it's done this massive growth, right? And people tend to look backwards and say, well, you know what, I did really well, so I'm going to jump in. But you need to understand the cycles, they are 10-year cycles. You know, seven, to, 7 to 11 years is the Brisbane cycle uh, in that sense from, from uh, trough to peak. That doesn't always pan out. The 7 to 11 years could be 3 years. It could be 7 years. It's an average figure. You need to recognise the changes that are happening in that area to say, okay, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring over here I'll mitigate my risk to say that you know it's it's not going to wake up anytime soon, so I'm going to hold on to this and to get out of trouble, I can do X, Y, and Z to the property uh, to bring it to a higher value potentially, either to attract a better tenant or to attract a uh, a purchaser. But we're holding it for the medium to long term. It's not not about focusing in the flash in the pan when everyone's talking about growth and how well they're doing in the area. It's actually setting yourself up before that, before that change is happening in the area, as the change is just starting to happen, to jump into the area so you can then ride the wave up and assume that it's never going to go your way. It's about choice. Yes. So rather than trying to catch the tiger's tail in a FOMO market, when everybody is 
softened, mm-hmm. there is more choice available for you. And that's an extremely advantageous point in time rather than just taking the, yeah, the seconds or yeah. whatever you can get. You mentioned an, an interesting thing in and around um, the moments in time and the trajectory of, of markets. And the one thing I'd love listeners to take away, especially new people that are entertaining investing or maybe have only been doing it for a little bit and don't really understand um, patterns, mm-hmm. trends, data, is that it the, the asset does not grow in a lineal sense. The trajectory is up, but it's not lineal. Yep. This fallacy in and around property doubles every 10 years or seven years at 7% is, is just that. It's just a mathematical equation. Correct. It, do, it doesn't. Look, sometimes you might be fortunate and it may happen. Mm. But more often than not, those analogies of doubling every seven years or 10 years is a myth. You, you can't hang your head on that, hang your hat on that, because for that to happen, there needs to be a certain amount of growth year on, year out, every single year. And the asset, no asset performs in that lineal sense. Once again, the trajectory is up but it's not the linear. And you might get 15% growth in one year, 2% the next, give back four, up five. But when you reverse engineer the numbers over a time period, let's call it 10, 15, 20 years, that's when you'll start to see the data. So the, it could be that it's grown by 7.3% mm-hmm. compounding over a measured 10-year period, but it might have done it in five and did nothing yep. for the rest. Or it might have taken longer, whatever the, whatever the numbers look like. But if you're budgeting on that lineal growth, you're putting yourself into a very, very dangerous mm. scenario and you will become the resentful investor. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people that work uh, off you know, plans on paper. Modeling. Modeling. That's the word I was looking for. And they say, okay, year one, I'm going to buy this property. And then year two, I'm going to leverage off that and buy the next one. And maybe year three, I'm going to repeat the process, right? Okay. A few things that are out of your control over here. One, finance. You could have all the equity in the world, but if the bank's not willing to give you the money, you can't progress. The second is the property actually going up in value enough for you to be able to extract that money out onto the next one. Uh, and this is where you know you can't have that set in stone planned approach you need to be morphing with the times, which is part of what, what we do in terms of making sure that, yes, we've got the concept. Yes, we'll, we'll buy one this year. If everything permits, we'll buy another one next year. Maybe buy one in three years' time. Maybe come back, do a construction on one of them. But we do these regular reviews to line, your, line ourselves up to take advantage of how the cards are falling on that particular property in terms of the economy, what's happening in the area, what's happening in your personal life. Right? Are, are you... Um, going into self-employed mode, you, you're going away from PAYG, so therefore lending is going to be a lot harder. So instead of waiting to buy in, say, year five, you bring forward that purchase to buy now so that you've got time uh, doing its work in the background, but also take into account that there will be perhaps strong fluctuations in your cash flow whilst you're doing, uh, whilst you're doing the self-employed gig. And the property then changes. The area may not change, but the property type may change in that area based on all of these other factors that you take into account. The area could change. Yeah, it could change. Because as well, the yeah. market's been mm. potentially It's made. already played out. Yeah, correct. Um, 
the, the interesting thing is for me is people put too much emphasis on the strategy. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly a very important mm-hmm. part of it. But so too is the review process. Mm. How, otherwise, how can you bring the pieces together in an ever-changing environment, including your own personal circumstances? If you're not reviewing, you don't know when to make the next move. Yep. Or to potentially not do anything rather than look at the spreadsheet to say, you must buy on the 21st of July. Yes. Because that's what the plan mm-hmm. says. So unless you can create the strategy that allows you to flex in certain directions and you're just stuck with this straight line approach. It's a very dangerous place to be. And, and I guess we're not speaking about this from a theoretical point of view either because being there, done that. Yeah. And often, the not often, all of the things that we say, look, potentially rethink doing that particular thing um, within the portfolio of your purchasing process is because we've done it. Mm, we've done the hard yards. And it didn't work. Mm. And we lost money. Um, but over this way, this one works. And I can think of a million examples, but probably the wrong... <laughs> the wrong type of the cycle to, to start doing that. So I guess um, the blocks taught us some lessons. Uh, one is not to believe everything in terms of what the media is saying. So uh, what I'm referring to there is all of the um, backstories uh, in there. Uh, because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, people went in there for two things. Make money, gain experience, gain exposure. And, um, it's exposure. Exposure. Say for what it is. <laughs> uh, and and um, the other is that uh, just because something's in the spotlight, it's in the limelight, doesn't mean that it is suitable for you. I think the biggest takeaway for me would be I'm going to get shot for this. I couldn't do a renovation with my wife because <laughs> <laughs> she, she's the boss and. I don't like being told what to do, so it'd just be a recipe for disaster. So that'll be the renovation. They'll takes it takes you know multiple weeks more than what it should. No, we would smash it out in record time um, because we would organise a cast of thousands behind us, just like there is on the block. On the block, it's um, interesting. Do you reckon you could do it? All no. jokes aside, no, no, no. Being on the block. Well, I've seen you do renovations, so it was a bit of a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we were leading. So for, for those that have li- uh, you know, listened to uh, our podcast for the first time or are new to our podcast, um, I have organised a whole lot of renovations, both for my portfolio and for the clients, but I can't even drive a nail straight. So a it, true it, story. It, it, it is a testimony to the fact that you need to understand the process, you need to understand the reasoning behind it. Expertise can be hired. <laughs> you know, I... Often when I speak to clients, I say, look, you know, the biggest difference is that you can make to a property is painting. Yeah. And I've never met a person who can't paint. <laughs> except, except Victor. <laughs> My very first property still has got half-painted architraves. I mean, <laughs> I've never gone back to painted. Painted lights, which Skirtings, is not architraves. PowerPoints. Yep. Everything gets painted. Mm-hmm. It works, it works. It works. It's... Um, I'm not sure it works they well. They were the early days. Yeah. I mean, we all we days. all cut our teeth somewhere, and often it's not it's not economically wise to do your own renovations mm-hmm. um, in some circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, in all seriousness, uh, th- that yep. is a very valid um, uh, valid comment, right? So, um, especially if you're a tradie uh, and you you want to make it perfect, right? Uh, sometimes perfection gets in the way of progress. True, B- but don't cut corners, though. I was about to say, if you're going to do it. Do it once, do it right. Yep. It, um, yeah, maybe we'll do a renovation podcast on all the things that we've learned. Because we have done 
literally hundreds upon hundreds yes. of renovations. Like hands-on. Mm. Well, I have. I've done that to you. I, I've, I've been the supervisor. <laughs> you, been, yeah, you walk around <laughs> with your clipboard and pointing in all the different directions. I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, you know, me standing around while you were tiling. Uh, and and saying saying that you know, uh, hang on, I think I think that one's not straight. <laughs> just yeah. to just to rile you up a bit. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you got a two hundred by two hundred tile to the throat. After you <laughs> <said>. <laughs> <laughs> and and we've got we've got photos to prove it as well. There we have. Yeah, because that was back in the day that w- we we were doing it quite deliberately to show people that it can yes. be done, uh, and that we that you could yourself can do it. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't even in our backyard. No, no, it was not. It was not. And um, but I, I like being on the tools. You don't. No. But I enjoy it. It's very cathartic for me, especially tiling. You know, I love it, the sort of the thought process and the layout behind it. I won't grout, but it, you know, different story. I digress. All right, Vic. What are people got to do? Well, uh, I suppose, um, especially coming into christmas now right so uh, if you have a pre-approval in place you need to reach out to us and be noisy uh, the reason being that um, uh, a lot of people when they put their properties on the market they are mentally motivated may not be financially motivated but mentally motivated to sell that property before christmas so often we find that there are uh, some bargains um however we, we also be very cautious that um, we don't get caught up in the silly season either. So that that's why you need to sit down with us. Uh, so reach out to us. Um, you can go onto our website uh, and click the contact me button. There is a little bit of a process. Uh, uh, Melissa has a chat with you first. She's a very accomplished investor, uh, seen, seen a few property cycles, and uh, she will then make sure that you get the best of our time by getting you ready to, to have the conversation with us so that uh, you're, you're coming in armed with your questions, that right questions uh, in that sense i think what we should also do as we get closer to christmas and we'll start today is we'll just give a few two tips mm-hmm. um to safeguard yourself over the christmas period so yep. uh, maybe the first two today would be especially in today's environments make sure you've got adequate insurance mm. so making sure that your cost of replacement on a house in particular is adequate especially with today's increasing cost uh, cost of construction correct and the other one that i would um urge people to think about is if you have a lease that is ending from now, so call it mid-November through till the end of January, I would make sure that my new lease agreements are stacked accordingly so that they never become out of lease or the lease agreement does not end in that same time zone being mid-November through to the end of January. So in other words, you either do a... 13 to 15 month lease or an eight month lease Correct. rather than 12 month lease. Yeah. Now the reason for that is because it doesn't matter how how um, warm, hot the rental market is or whatever it may be, it is just a bad time of year mm. to have your properties uh, ending lease in case. And it's always about the worst case scenario. Tenant leaves, who's going to move at that time of year. So yeah. there's, there's two tips. Uh, next podcast, we'll give another two. Absolutely. So uh, do uh, share our podcast with your friends and family. Don't keep us a secret. And if you wanted to chat with us, just reach out to us on the socials or on our website and uh, we'll be more than happy to give you our time. And there it is, Vic. Making markets, the block, and a few tips to boot. So we'll be back.
with Phil in a couple of weeks. We'll see you then. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you.